Hello, my beautiful people. We're going to continue with Killer Choice Chapter 13. Killer Choice Chapter 13. The day passed quickly. He ate lunch with Beth, carried on a conversation as best he could, drove her to yoga class, which left him alone in the house for a while. When 6 p.m. arrived, Gary crumbled up the diagram he sketched and threw it in the garbage at Tyson's room. It was no longer needed. He had the neighborhood and the surrounding area committed to memory. In the living room, he sat down on the couch next to Beth. How'd it go? She said. Long day. Same here. Made a lot of phone calls. Not much luck. She showed him the fundraising page on her smartphone. Just under $18,000 total raised. He put an arm around her and she leaned into his body. Gary kissed the top of her head. I'm going to throw something in the microwave for dinner, she said. You feel like lasagna or mac and cheese. Actually, it'll just be you and Tyson for dinner. I have to run to the store and take care of some business. I think I'll be a, it'll be a late night. It might be. There's a lot of thought to do to get ready for spring. He placed one hand on Beth's stomach, running his fingers over her baby bump. Holding Beth and Tyson in his arms, Gary allowed himself to forget about the murder for a moment. Forget that he'd be ending the life of another human being in a matter of hours. Forget that he was more scared than he'd ever been before. For just this moment, he wanted to forget about tonight and hold Beth and Tyson in his arms. A few short hours later, Gary loosely gripped the Corolla's steering wheel as the car, its lights out, drifted to a stop into a thicker pine trees. She sh- he shut off the engine and silence enveloped him, and his eyes slowly adjusted to the darkness. The trees clustered around him came into focus. Mabels, oaks, buckies, sycamores, sycamores. They surround the car, rising tall against the blackness of the night sky. Gary remained in the front seat, his hands on the steering wheel, as though the decisions to stay on drive off are still unresolved in his mind. He appeared to be a man deep in thought, but there was nothing left to think about. He had a plan. All that was left was to execute it. He grabbed a plain black cap off the passenger seat and pulled the bill down over his forehead. He'd taken the hat and heavy black coat from the shelves of a season out of where earlier. They were the two most inconspicuous looking items in the store, perfect for blending into the night. He slipped in a pair of black gloves, also taken from the store, and grabbed the handgun from the glove compartment. He carefully placed the gun in the pocket of his coat. The barrel pointed downward and exited the car lightly, shutting the door behind him. Bundling his coat, Gary walked through the heavily wooded area. It looked like a forest preserved. He was just a park, only parked car that stretched the blocks along the edge of Devon Peterson's neighborhood. After five minutes, Gary slipped through a cluster of bushes and exited into the street that bordered the park. This was 800 block of Federicks Street less than three blocks from Devin Peterson's house. When he reached the intersection of Walton and Fredericks, he turned left onto Walton. 
Everything was just as Gary had sketched it, exactly as he remembered it. There were seven houses on each side of the block, all of them dark and shadowy. Devin Peterson's house was on the left side of the street, third house from the inn. Gary approached the house. Walking briskly, no hesitation in his movement, and slipped behind a thick, shaggy bush in the front yard. The bush was big enough to conceal him entirely. The detached garage was roughly ten feet in front of him. The small, cement walkway that led him from the garage side door to the house front entrance passed directly beside the bush. Gary focused on the street in front of the house, waiting for Devin Peterson's car to arrive. His gloved right hand rested his coat pocket, brushing up against the gun. He adjusted the bill of the hat, pulling it down further. Time passed. Eleven came and went. Eleven, ten. He tried to focus, but all he could think about was everything that could go wrong when the moment arrived. Ignoring these thoughts was impossible. The words settled into his mind like tiny seeds, sprouting pale shoots of doubts. He envisioned the gun snagging on his coat pocket, his shoes slipping on the damp grass, the gun not firing or firing wide or high or low. Stay focused, he told himself. Stay focused on a task at hand. Don't think about anything. More time passed. The neighborhood remained silent and dark and stoned. Gary moved his head from side to side and back to the loose in his neck. He flexed his toes and ran some muscle tension through his calves, his thighs, his back, his shoulders. And then a car appeared at the end of the street. It was only a pair of headlights at first. Two became cutting through the darkness as they approached the house. The red, the blue, the shelf lights on top of the car, and the River Falls PD insignia on the side slowly became visible. The sight of the police cruiser sent Gary's heart into overdrive. He crouched down, lowering behind the bush as Cheetah preparing to pounce. The cruiser slowed a few feet from house driveways. The rear block brake lights casting a low red illumination behind it. As the car turned into the driveway, the tires lightly crushed on the asphalt. A moment later, the automatic garage door opened with a rattling noise that cut through the tranquility of the night. The cruiser was 15 feet from the bush, concealing Gary so close that he could see Devin in the driver's seat. Staring straight ahead at the rising garage door, once the door was fully open. Devin pulled the cruiser into the garage. The door rattled again, and it closed shut behind the door. Gary's hand tightened around the gun. He pulled it down his coat pocket and rested his index finger on the trigger inside the garage. He heard the door engine go silent. Immediately after that, the car door opened. Then slammed shut. Gary focused on the garage side door, only a few feet away. He breathed in and out faster and faster, working himself up, making himself pathetically hyperventilate. Seconds ticked away in his head. The doorknob jagged in place and the garage side door swung open. A shadowy figure emerged. Even in the darkness, Gary could make out Devin burly face and buzz cut hair, his tree trunk arms. Devin shut the door behind him and stepped onto the small cement walkway. He walked towards the house. He was only five feet away, close enough that Gary could hear the soles of his shoes on the cement. Gary gripped the gun tighter. Suddenly there was no heartbeat in his chest, just total and complete silence. Gary sprang from behind the shadow of the bush, 
Devin's head swerved toward the sudden movement. Before he could react, Gary raised the gun and pulled the trigger. Metal tongue. The gunfire. The gunshot was incredibly loud in the, at the serene night. Sounding like louder than the shots he'd fired in the country earlier. The bullet ripped a hole in Devin's uniform right above his stomach, exposing a small piece of white undershirt that immediately darkened with blood. Devin staggered backwards and paused at the summit wound. When he moved his hand away, the palm was covered in blood that looked completely black in the dark night. Devin stumbled backward another step. He he stared at Gary. You motherfucker, he is. He coughed and a few droplets of blood spattered onto the edge of his mouth. I'm a cop, you motherfucker. Devin collapsed his knees, throwing one hand out to brace his fall. His other hand still pushed against his stomach, blood pausing from the wound and covering his hand. Gary looked down at his his, this man dying right before his eyes, the life slowly draining from out of him. And uh, Devin's left hand, Devin suddenly noticed his left hand. Devin had moved the hand to the gun holstered on his belt. He fumbled at the gun, trying to unclap it. Gary took two quick steps toward Devin and aimed the gun at his head. He pulled the trigger, but just as the gun fired, Devin jerks his head on the side. The bullet hit him in the lower jaw, breaking it so that it hung from his head like a broken, virtualist dummy. His tongue was severed and a river of blood poured from his mouth, oozing onto the police uniform. A frightening, grudging scream emerged from his throat. His left hand continued to fumble at the gun holstered at the belt. Gary took another step toward Devin at point-blank range now. His hands were slick with sweat inside the gloves trembling. He held the gun to the barrel, was pointed directly to the middle of Gary's face. Only inches away, he pulled the triggers a final time, and Devin Peterson's face exploded. His escape plan went wrong from the start. Gary had mentally prepared himself for the moment at best he could. But he was not at all ready for the kind of ugliness produced by his final squeeze of the trigger. Devin Peterson's body lay on the blood-soaked pavement, the middle of the face nothing more than a gapping, bloody wound. His lifeless eyes stared out into the night sky, unblinking. Bone shards and chunks of brain were splattered onto the sidewalk behind his head. Gary stood above the body, the gun still pointed downward. The scene in front of him was the most horrific, awful sight he'd ever seen, yet he couldn't look away. He stared at Devin's destroyed face as if it was in a trance. The blood, the carnage, it was everywhere. It was like a bomb had gone off inside Devin's skull. It, through his peripheral vision, Gary saw the porch light flash on outside the house next door. He instinctively glazed in that direction. A man looked out the house from front window. A phone, a phone to his car, staring in the direction of Devin's house. His eyes locked with Gary's for a brief moment, and the men quickly ducked behind the window frame. Across the street, the porch light of another house flashed on illuminating the darkest street. Two houses down, another light came on. Gary spun away from the dead body and squinted towards the backyard of Devin Peterson's house. Still holding the gun, he pumped his arms like pistons as he tore past the garage. Gary turned left cutting across the backyard of the house next door. He could barely see a few feet in front of him, but he ran as far as he could through the darkness. His footing was unsteady on the damp grass. Another house light came on, another. He reached in on the block, hustled across the road for no reason other than to stop running in a straight line. He abruptly turned right and triggered through one yard, 
then zagged through another. He snipped on the wet grass, fell to the ground, and instantly sprang back up. Cut through a few more yards, crossed another road. He came to another abrupt stop at his intersection. He was completely lost. He had his entire route back to his car planned out. Two blocks north, two blocks cast, then run a few blocks to the bar to his concealed car. But he got spunked and simply started running around the neighborhood like a ma- maniac. He had no idea where he was in relation to his car. He was, Gary heard a police siren. The sound was still distant, but it was definitely a police siren rising and falling in cycles. In a buying panic, he looked up at the street sign at the end of the block, the intersection of Van Mills and Barron. He mapped out Devin Peterson's entire neighborhood, but he didn't recognize either of the street names. He looked around at his darkest surroundings, looked for some sort of landmark or sign pointing him in the right direction, something, anything. And then he spotted it. In the distance, he could just barely see the tops of a cluster of pine trees across the night sky, rising above the neighborhood. The park where he left his car, it seemed impossible far away. He'd been sprinting away from the park. He instantly took off toward the treetop. He cut across a backyard and sealed a privacy fence, hurling him over the top. The police siren continued to sound. It was closer, no longer in the distance, close enough and loud enough for Gary to determine that there wasn't a that there wasn't a single siren, but two or three, maybe more. His surroundings flashed by in a blur as he continued on for a block, then another. His shoes slapped into the soggy ground. The trees were closer, but he was running slower now, purely on fumes and fear. Adrenaline had given way to absolute exhaustion. He reached a front yard at the exact moment a cop car turned onto the street a few houses away. The car's tires squealed as it took the turn and headed straight toward him. Blue and red strobe lights flashed off the cobblestone driveways and the sides of the houses. Gary jumped behind a tree and stood still, completely motionless. If the cops spotted him, that would be it. He was too tired to outrun them. There would be no last stand. If they'd seen the shadowing figure that ducked behind the tree, they would catch him. It was that simple. The siren grew cars platicling loud as a cruiser raced toward him. Closer and closer without slowing, the cruiser zoomed past him and turned left at the end of the street. Gary stepped onto out from the behind the tree. He hurried over to the thickest thicket of the pine trees across the street and slipped past some shrubbery. Police sirens some distance, some close, sounded behind him, around him, and he struggled through the park. When he reached his car, he scrambled inside, throwing the gun down on the passenger seat. He rammed the keys into the ignition and fired up the engine. He, his headlights out, he inched the car toward the edge of the road and looked both ways. The road was clear. <clears throat> More blocks away, he could set and see the police car's lights flashing red and blue. Kiloscopically, pauses until the night sky. Gary pulled the car onto the road and turned on the high lights, his heart racing, his eyes constantly scanning the road. He drove into the opposite direction from Devin Peterson's house. A mile later, he reached the on-ramp for I-84. He pulled his car over the highway and drove away, forcing himself to observe the speed ahead. 
It was almost midnight at the time Gary pulled the Corolla into an empty parking stall in front of a seizure outerwear. He exited the car and creeped up to the front door. It took three tries before he could steady his shaking hand enough to insert the key into the lock. Inside the store was dark, even darker than the night. Leaving the lights off, Gary fumbled across around behind the counter until he found a large plastic sack. He walked down the main aisle and stepped into the small bathroom in the rear of the store. He needed to clean himself up before returning home to Beth. He stripped naked and crammed everything into the sack, his coat, his shirt, his pants, his socks, and his shoes. He set the gun and car keys off to the side. Gary looked at himself in the mirror above the sink, his face only inches from the reflection. There were small driplets of Devin's blood dotting his face like freckles. Stuck to his cheek was a bloody chunk of pink tissue the size of a thyme, a bloody lump of muscle or skin. Gary forced back the bell, rising his throat, and turned on the faucet. He cupped his hands underneath and splashed water into his face. He pumped the liquid soap dispenser mounting above the sink and furiously scrubbed away at his cheeks and forehead. The bloody chunk of the tissue fell onto the sink basin. It was small enough to be carried down the drain by the rubbery, rushing water. After putting himself dry and patting himself dry with some paper towels, he looked at himself in the mirror and studied his face, gazed into his eyes. It had been close. He'd come too very close to getting caught. He'd been spotted by neighbors, nearly seen by the cops. On the interstate, he saw three separate police cars speeding opposite him toward the scene of the crime. Every few seconds, his eyes darted into the rearview mirror, certain that he would see one of the cruisers making a U-turn and speeding up behind him in pursuit. He'd been so spooked that he almost crashed twice on the drive to a seizure's outerwear. Gary walked back to the cell floor and put on a t-shirt and a pair of sweatpants he took off a shelf. He grabbed the gun from the bathroom and carried it into the back room. The, the east wall of the back room was nothing more than an unpainted sheet of playwood, plywood hammered over a layer of insulation. He pulled back a corner of the plywood and stuffed the gun behind insulation. It was as good as hiding spot as any. Simply throwing the gun in a garage receptacle or down a sewer grate seemed too risky, too prone to be being randomly discovered by someone. Plus, he hadn't wanted to stop even for a moment or a minute when driving away from the crime scene. He wanted to get far, far, far away, as quickly as possible. In a few weeks, once the lakes and the leaks and the area thawed from the late winter freeze, he'd find one to throw the gun into. He set the plywood back in place and walked over to the small desk in the middle of the room. His cell phone and wallet rested on top of the desk, in the same place he'd put them before leaving from Devin Peterson's house. He grabbed his phone and brought the screen to life. He had a text from Beth sent an hour ago. Headed to bed. Hope you're not working too hard. XO, XO. He typed out a message. Sorry, phone was on silent. Still up? Yeah, tired, but I can't sleep. 
heading home now. As Gary drove home, his phone rang. Unknown read the screen. He answered it. Well, Shamrock. Gary recognized the voice instantly. It's done, Gary said. The line went dead.